We will be reading from John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. Once more he visited Cana and Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him. I'm sorry, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that there was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Let us pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time for us to be here together. We want to position our hearts to receive your word, to learn from you, to grow, to be like you, to see other people as you see them, to trust you, and to be fathered by you. Lord, we need you this morning. We thank you for everything that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Dave. Good morning. Good to see everyone. My name is Simon. We've not met. I'm the pastor, um, one of several leaders here at Grace City who are here to serve you. Thank you for being here this morning. Um, good Thanksgiving? Yeah. yeah? Me too. Good. I want to start with a short story. I may have told this one before, but I think it's been a while, so uh, bear with me. This was several years ago, actually. I took a trip to Israel. Um, probably one of the coolest things I've ever done in my life. And uh, I met some amazing people there, learned a ton. One of the people that I met ended up becoming a, a dear friend, someone that I really look up to. Uh, I think we had maybe crossed paths once or twice prior to that time, um, but we, we met uh, properly um, as we were on this trip together in Israel. We were there for like a month. This uh, trip for me was, well, it was significant on many levels. One, it was just a trip to Israel. To, to study some of the history and the language and the culture and the Bible and all of that, like people do. Um, but it was also a time of uh, recovery. I had been through one of the more difficult seasons in my life. Um, yeah, a very, very difficult season of my life. Um, I wasn't yet married. Um, I, I was still living in the States. Um, shortly after that trip, I'd moved to the UK and spent um, some time there, about nine years. Um, but I was still single, still living in the States, and had just come out of a season where uh, 
I, w- I don't want to go into all the details because it's not really important, but I, I had been uh, hurt, betrayed, lied to, um, let down in I, probably one of the worst, worst ways I've ever experienced in my life. Um, someone who I had trusted and really looked up to had ended up um, just been living a total lie. And turns out, I, I think he was like an actual, like a, a real sociopath and, and just a, a generally bad person. <laughs> and uh, I was devastated. That was the season that I was in. This man that I met in Israel, his name is Greg, Canadian guy. Some of you know Greg Mitchell. Uh, in fact, he's been with us here on a Sunday morning. It's been a few years, but some of you probably remember him. I met Greg Mitchell. Um, I, I quickly discovered that Greg was, he was a pastor, and he is a pastor of a wonderful church up in Vancouver, BC. Um, but also has a real, um, he's a counselor. He's a trained uh, counselor with a ton of experience, and, uh, and that's really his, his great passion. And I, I, I realized this and thought, man, maybe, maybe this is my opportunity to actually sit down with, with this man who's quite a bit older than me and who's been pastoring for many, many years and, and is a real gifted counselor. So we finally, uh, I, I worked up the courage to approach him. I told him, I said, Greg, I don't know if you know me uh, or, or, you know, or, or aware of kind of my situation and the things that I've been going through because I think maybe we had some mutual friends. Um, but I'd love to sit down with you and kind of tell you what, what I'm going through because I'm just, I'm a mess and I, I really need some advice and some help and some prayer. And he said, Simon, I, I would love to. I'd absolutely love to. So like the next day or something, we, we carved out some time and we sat down and I spilled my guts. And I told him how I'd been done wrong and I was hurting and I'd been betrayed and all of these things, how I'd been essentially sinned against. And he listened and listened and listened and I just spilled my guts. And the first thing he said, I think, I think I'm getting it right. I think I'm remembering it accurately. But he basically said, Simon, I, I think you need to repent. And I was just like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> I didn't say that out loud, but I just thought, you're, you're the worst. Like, you're, clearly you're confused. He said, Simon, I think you need to repent for not loving this man enough to confront him right where he was at, uh, to speak the truth to him. And I've never, ever forgotten that conversation. Now, I know some of you might be thinking like, I, I don't like Greg. That just, this is, I don't like that. I don't like that story. I don't, I don't like where you ended it. Um, and that's really not the ending, in fact. But I wanted healing. I, I wanted someone to like empathize with me, feel, maybe feel a little bit bad for me, um, comfort me, and, and maybe pray for me that God would heal my heart. I wanted to be healed. I think God wanted to have a conversation with me about love. And that's kind of like what's happening in this little passage that we've just read together. 
There's a person here, a father, some sort of official, who's heard rumors about Jesus. He thought maybe this is the man who can help me because my son, presumably his little boy, is on the verge of death. And he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, please come and, and heal my son. And Jesus wants to talk to him about faith, about believing. He says, unless you see signs, and this is his immediate response. This is about as abrasive as Greg's response to me, that little meeting we had in Israel. Come, my son is at the point of death, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs, unless you people, the word's actually plural, unless you people, you guys, see signs and wonders, you will not believe. How, how abrasive is that? Now, the cool thing, there's a lot of cool things about this, but one of the super cool things is that Jesus actually says the word, and he says, go, your son will live. And it says that the man believed him. And so he left. And sure enough, before he even got home, the servants came and met him and said, your, your, your boys it started recovering. When? When exactly did it happen? It was around the seventh hour, 1 p.m. Oh, my God. Jesus healed my boy. So the cool thing is that Jesus actually did like meet the need of that man and speak the word and his son didn't die. So it's a story about Jesus' incredible compassion for hurting people and his ability to speak a word and overcome death. That's awesome. But it's also a story about Jesus utilizing a moment to make an object lesson about believing. Did not the man believe that Jesus could heal his son? I mean, I'm assuming that's why he found Jesus. He had heard that this was the, the miracle man who could speak a word and change water into wine, which is the other miracle that took place in this city where they were at. So he believed enough to go find this man and ask him, and it says that even after Jesus said, go, your son will live, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. So there's a, there's a belief, there's a kind of faith at work in this man's life, but the way Jesus responds in the moment is it's almost, it's intriguing at the very least. Unless you see signs and wonders, this generation will never really believe Walking with Jesus, well, this will become more and more apparent as we continue our way through the book of John. Walking with Jesus is this journey of learning to believe. In fact, if we get towards the very end of the book, I think I've referenced this a couple times already in John chapter 20, the, the gospel writer, John the gospel writer, he says it explicitly. This is why I've written all of these things down, that you too, that would be us, might believe. He wants us to believe. What we discover along the way, this journey of walking with Jesus, 
listening in on these moments and, and these interactions. Jesus wants us to grow in how we believe in him. It would seem that God is uh, quite interested in helping us to deepen our trust in him. So we're gonna talk about faith. We're gonna talk about believing this morning. Jesus is keenly interested in seeing his disciples mature in their faith. And there's a spectrum of faith, there's a spectrum of believing um, that we discover along the way. I wanna break this into four parts. Uh, The kind of belief that we see uh, exemplified in scripture and, 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 and this believing that seems to mature given certain circumstances and as, as people get closer to Jesus, there's, a, there's an unbelief, there's a, there seems to be a kind of belief that, that someone might have in a moment of crisis. Uh, there's, there's sign belief, which Jesus seems to not be totally opposed to, but, but wants to take his disciples beyond. And then there's, of course, a, a refined belief. There's a deeper belief. There's a mature faith that I think that ultimately Jesus wants to lead us all into. Let's start with unbelief. Now, I'm not going to quote a whole bunch of verses here. I think we can, I'd like to think that we can just agree that like unbelief is a thing in the Bible. It's a thing in the world. Um, It's actually a bit of a misnomer. Uh, at least in the biblical sense, there is no such thing as unbelief. There's only the, the thing that you have belief in. So in the biblical story, unbelief isn't like the absence of faith. It's just when you choose to believe in someone or something, oftentimes yourself, um, as opposed to God. And God calls that unbelief. Or Jesus refers to it as disbelief. So we are always believing in something. We're putting our faith in something. We're trusting in someone or something. It's just a matter of what or whom. Unbelief um, often sounds like, this is not working out for me. I don't trust that God will take care of me in this situation. Therefore, it's time for me to take matters in my own hands. My son's dying, my life is falling apart, Um, I'm hurting, I'm confused, I'm feeling uh, resentment grow every day, and I'm beginning to wonder, is God really good? Is he present in my life? Is he aware? Does he actually care? I'm beginning to waver. My faith, my belief, my quote-unquote belief is waning. I'm thinking maybe it's time that I, I put a bit more faith in myself and take matters into my own hands. Maybe this is the time to grasp for control. That's, that's usually what unbelief sounds like in uh, real life terms. And unbelief, like love and selfishness, 
or courage and fear, integrity and hypocrisy, etc. Believing or faith and unbelief, these things always play out in very real ways. They're not mere abstractions. Unbelief actually works out in our life in real human interactions, in our relationships. So these aren't just like uh, abstract concepts or, or like something that happens merely in my inner world of thoughts and feelings. Whether I have faith in God or faith in someone or something else actually works out in like very real, concrete relational terms. These things have real effects. For example, Genesis chapter three, you know virtually everything in the Bible can be found like in seed form in the book of Genesis? Yeah. Genesis chapter three, um, this is where if you're familiar with the story, or if not, that's fine, but there's a man and a woman who God created his image bearers are living in this garden and there's a serpent there that represents the deceiver. The being who wants to tempt the people to not trust God, to not believe that God is as good and faithful as perhaps they thought he was. So the serpent's lie is God is not as good as you think he is. The result, it works out in very concrete uh, terms. The the humans actually fall for it and they, they doubt God or they choose to trust the serpent, trust themselves, not trust God and the results are immediate and devastating. First of all, they withdraw. They... They once lived in a way where they were completely unashamed. This is they're naked and without shame. But as soon as unbelief, as soon as doubt entered into the equation, they withdrew. They began to hide and isolate uh, from God and eventually even each other. So that's the first thing that happens when unbelief enters into the equation. Withdrawal. Number two, um, they retaliate where the humans act out. The man and the woman, well, the man specifically actually ends up blaming the woman for the situation. Actually, he sort of blames God, really. He blames God for giving him this woman, this person in his life that he was meant to be in relationship with and enjoy and love and serve and and live with. And he says, well, God, you did this. And begins to blame and lash out, and we often do this in the name of uh, fairness. It's not my fault. This person hurt me. This person did me wrong. This person betrayed me, and therefore I am perfectly justified in acting out or retaliating or taking control of the situation. This uh, Mindset is commonly done through gossip, backbiting, quarreling, and other ways of using our words to point the finger and tear others down. This is what happens in this garden uh, scene. 
ultimately, thirdly and ultimately, you see separation manifest. The man and the woman, uh, they have a family that ends up fracturing. Two sons, one actually kills the other. What was supposed to be this amazing uh, picture of family that resembled who God was like ends up sort of caving in on itself. And this is the, this is what happens when unbelief, when lack of trust begins to work itself out in relationships. We withdraw, we isolate. Technically, we usually remain present, but our heart is slowly but surely drifting far away. Uh, We lash out, we retaliate. We blame shift, we point the finger, we play the victim, and we begin to tear others down with our words and our attitudes. The ultimate effect is relational separation. And this is the story. This is the paradigm. This is the picture that we're given all the way back in Genesis 3. My point is really that belief or unbelief or belief in its various forms actually works out in very real relational terms. It's easy to think of faith as like this sort of spiritual abstraction, but it's not. Faith is trust. And when you don't have it, or when it's misplaced or abused, the result is very real. And typically, it's most, it's felt most, most painfully in our relationships with God and each other. Let's keep going. Now, I want to lump the next two together because this is where, this is where our story, uh, the, the man, the official with the son who's dying, this is where we find him. It's sort of a combination of crisis belief and sign belief. Crisis belief sounds a little bit like I have to believe because the alternative is just too painful to simply accept. This is where the official is determined to find Jesus because you would seem he does believe that Jesus can do it, but I think we've all been there. Like I I want to believe that God cares and is real and is listening to me and able to answer my prayers because if he can't, I don't know what to do with that. Like I need to believe that God is who he says he is and able to actually do something with my pain and my mess. This is sort of a desperation kind of belief. Have you ever prayed for someone and in the back of your head you've got this sort of idea that like, I I know that somehow like in order for God to respond, I have to believe that he can. And it feels a little unfair because like I want to believe, but am I supposed to just pretend like I believe when like a little part of me deep down inside kind of doubts if God is even real? And yet I'm so desperate, I choose to believe because the alternative is just, it's, it's, I, I can't accept it. I'm desperate to believe that Jesus can heal me. And this is crisis belief. This is where we find this man. And there is no one, I hope, that can't empathize with this person. This sort of, I'm, just, I'm desperate enough to believe. 
But Jesus seems to see something about that belief that he wants to, he wants to work on. It's, it's as if he says, I do believe, but it's not until he leaves and then discovers, I don't know how long he'd been on the road, but he discovers that in fact it worked. Like Jesus spoke the word and, and he left. And when he realized that his son began to recover the exact time that Jesus spoke the word, then we're told he believed. So it was as if, well, he kind of believed, but now he really believes because something actually happened. Like, I think it worked. Well, now I definitely believe. I mean, I was kind of hoping, but now, now, I have just experienced a sign. Sign belief, it's a a believing or a faith that's founded on the experience of a seemingly miraculous event. And so, again, in the case of of the story that we've read this morning, the father moves from crisis belief to sign belief, from desperate to believe to circumstantial faith, which is good. Er. Believing because you've now actually experienced the faithfulness, the power of God, that's good. Until perhaps circumstances change. Signs and wonders can serve as a great catalyst for igniting faith, but not every child gets healed. And so sign belief can be a tricky one. It can be a real tricky one. It's a slippery uh, foundation to build real robust faith on trust. Because what do you do the next time you cry out in desperation and God says, "Mm, not this time, not in this life. Not in this way. Not in this timing. And now you don't have the sign to sort of found your, uh, your faith on. Sometimes even when you do have a sign that perhaps ignites faith within you, we all know how tempting it can be um, to quickly begin to wonder, well, maybe it was just a fluke. Maybe it was a coincidence. You ever have that honest conversation with yourself? You're like, oh, it's real. I knew that God could, could do it. But then almost immediately began to think, well, but, I, you know, I, technically it could have been a coincidence. And it's, it's the tricky nature of sign belief. John uh, 12, 37 This is getting a little bit towards the end. And Jesus, he says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Jesus knew that actually, well, crisis belief is better than unbelief. Sign belief is is definitely a step forward. But he wants to keep his disciples. He wants to help us to keep moving forward, to keep growing, to keep deepening in our belief 
He wants to teach us how to trust him in a way that even goes beyond circumstances, which brings us to refined belief. Trust that has been tested. Faith that has been forged through the difficult trials of life. I love what Peter writes. This is uh, the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Can we put that slide up, please? He writes, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation or the revealing of Jesus Christ. This is a man who's been walking with Jesus for a long, long time, who witnessed the miracles, who experienced the pain, and who is now walking with Jesus, who's come to believe that God is exactly who, has, who he has revealed himself to be in Jesus in a way that he can trust even in the midst of like real life, real life, the real hard stuff of life. What would that feel like? Refined belief or tested faith sounds like I trust that my heavenly father is present and at work in this painful situation. My child did die. The cancer is not going away. I'm still infertile. There is no undoing the lie, the abuse that I was subjected to those many years ago. But I'm not withdrawing. I'm not overcompensating. I'm not acting out. I'm not seizing for control. I'm not giving in to my own trauma and anxiety because I believe that my father is exactly who he says he is. He is good. He is trustworthy. He does have a plan. His ways are so beyond my ways. And even though I cannot, for the life of me, understand what he's doing in this moment, Father, I trust you. I trust you. And it's a faith, it's a believing that comes out on the other side of pain. It's a refined belief. This is the journey. This is is where Jesus is leading us. It's a kind of belief that says, I don't have to withdraw. I don't have to retaliate or separate myself from the people around me out of resentment or disdain because I trust that my Father is good and faithful and faithfully at work bringing about good things out of the painful circumstances of my life. And this has a profound impact on my life, namely my relationships. Let me read to you um, 
some words of Jesus that have been recorded in the gospel according to Luke. This is Luke 17. I don't know that, oh there, yeah it is. It says, if your brother sins against you or your sister sins against you seven times in one day and says to you, I repent seven times that same day, then you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, his disciples said to him in response, increase our faith, oh my gosh. And the Lord said, if you had faith, like a grain of mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which is a very uh, Jesus-esque way of saying, you don't need bigger faith, you need better faith. You don't need more faith per se, you need a more mature faith. We're not talking about quantity, we're not talking about hype or some sort of an emotional feeling, we're talking about something of deep substance. It doesn't have to be big, it doesn't have to be showy, it just needs to be real faith. Faith to forgive. How about that for relational impact? Romans 12, last one. This time it's the Apostle Paul writing, and he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but insofar as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. This kind of trust that Jesus wants us to experience, this sort of refined faith, God wants to give us, because this is where the true power of the gospel lies, a faith that empowers us to forgive those who sin against us, to love those who hate us, to trust that God sees our pain and that he is faithful to see justice done. As soon as out of my pain, my betrayal, my sense of, um, you've done me wrong, and I don't see God doing anything about it the way I think he should, that's my cue to take matters into my own hands. And I will either punish you with my withdrawal, which is my MO, ask my wife, I'm the best stonewaller you ever meet. If you hurt me, if you cross me, I will just smile and politely withdraw and just watch you suffer. (laughs) Talk about sociopathic. (laughs) It's not, it's not. I've been working on it for many years now. Or conversely, you lash out. You say, well, if God's not gonna do anything, then I will see justice done. And I will speak truth and use my words to make you pay. Or, Father, you see the heart. My goodness, you've been patient with me. You've shown me so much mercy. Lord, I forgive this person. I appeal to your higher court. 
Lord, would you see that justice is done? Would you extend them mercy the way you've done with me? This is the power of gospel at work in real life. Don't repay evil for evil. Love. Overcome evil by doing good. Good to those who betray you. That's unreal. Because I trust that my father is good. He's faithful. He sees. He sees my heart. He sees the heart of the person that's sinned against me. Seven times in one day. Father, I trust you. I trust you. I don't have to withdraw, retaliate, or separate myself from the people around me because I trust that my Father is good and faithful and faithfully at work bringing about good things out of the painful circumstances of my life. How? How do do we uh, begin to trust God in this way? I think most of us probably live in the realm of like between crisis and sign belief most of the time. I've got a crisis, I'm desperate, Jesus, please, I believe. Or maybe I've experienced something of God's faithfulness. I can recall like moments in my life when God has actually shown up and done things, like answered prayers and like I have a miracle and thank God for those moments, for those journal entries. So grateful for those things. But what if God wants to help us to, like, to keep growing in our faith, to mature in the way we trust him, so that when things aren't going the way we'd like them to go, and it's like, this is not what I'm going to be journaling about tonight. This is the part of life that I'm, I'm, I'm eager to forget and move on from. What about those moments when it's not working out and I'm tempted to simply run away, withdraw, or retaliate? Jesus wants to to lead us on this journey of learning to trust him, to to believe that he is faithful. A refined kind of faith. How, how, How how do we get there? How do we do that? Two closing thoughts. Can I invite the worship team to join me up front, please? two very simple thoughts. Because you might be thinking like, this, yes, this makes sense. I kind of understand what perhaps Jesus was trying to do in the moment. I'll heal your son, but I want to teach you to trust me in a a slightly more refined way. How do you do that? Two, Two very simple thoughts. Number one, if you're struggling with this idea of trusting him in this way, ask him to help you. Mark chapter 9, very similar situation. There's a man with a young son who's not sick, but who's been being harassed by a demon. It's like coming on this little boy and, and, and he's not able to talk. And it's, it's weird, but it's this little kid, this father's kid is being oppressed by a demon. And the man comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you can do something, will you please Please help my son. And Jesus says, if I can, nothing's impossible for him who believes. And the father says, 
I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe because I'm desperate. But help me, Jesus. We can pray that prayer. It's a prayer. Jesus, help. Help me to trust you. Help me to trust you in my anxiety. Help me to trust you when I'm tempted to withdraw and run away. Help me to trust you when all I really want to do is lash out and use my words to protect myself and to feel strong. Help me to trust you in those ways. Help. It's one of the first prayers I like to teach anyone who's, who's just made the decision to follow Jesus. Say this prayer, Lord Jesus, help. And secondly, after you've prayed that prayer, be still. Be still. Wait. The temptation to seize control, to take matters into your own hands or do whatever you do, whatever your MO is, it's not going to magically disappear. Wait. Be still. Sometimes Jesus wants to refine our trust in him by allowing us the opportunity to wait. Uncomfortably wait. Wait. Wait on the Lord. Trust. Exercise that that faith. Lord Jesus, help us. Can we do oceans again? And then the other one? Is that okay? Is it a different key? Undoubtedly, I think we could go down each pew, each seat, and say, okay, where are you at? Let's, let's, uh, let's all put our junk on the table. Say, what's your pain? What's the thing you're going through? Where are you tempted uh, to seize control, to withdraw or to act out? And we could all tell our stories man, this person did this to me. And maybe it happened like 20 years ago, but my goodness, that thing is just still there like it happened yesterday. Lord Jesus, help us all. Help us to trust you, that you do see what's been done to us. And that you are able to see justice done, to set wrong things right, to redeem broken situations to help us to fight for the weak. Can we stand together, please? Whatever it is that you've got going on in your life, I pray that you would think about it. And as we sing these words, let it be our declaration. Lord Jesus, help. Help us to trust you. And as a family of believers, as a church, help us to demonstrate something of your faithfulness to a world that's looking on. 
to a world that knows nothing but seize control, take the power, see justice done. God's kids would be still and say, Lord Jesus, we trust you. God, you take care of all the evil in the world. I'm going to be busy doing good, loving my enemies, blessing those who curse me, welcoming those who would reject me. Lord, help us to be your kids that reflect your heart and to trust you in that way. In Jesus' name, amen.